Here's hoping that one day Ukraine will be united and free, free of Russian oppression. How we get there, though, is very, very dangerous, tricky road that needs to be navigated with extreme care in the months ahead. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy, and culture to an international audience. Hello folks, welcome back to America Explained. I'm your host Andy Gothorp. In today's episode, we're talking about the latest events in the war in Ukraine, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, Russia's response to it, and what it means for possible ways that the conflict might end. As always, if you enjoy America Explained, please consider telling a friend about the podcast and help us grow. You might also want to check out our America Explained newsletter, a free email bulletin that you can sign up for using the link in the show notes for this episode. If you sign up for the newsletter, you'll receive several posts a month with written commentary on the bread and butter of this podcast, American politics and American foreign policy. I just published a post about Liz Truss, the new British Prime Minister, and what her actions and the the calamity that she's stumbled into can tell us about Anglo-American conservatism today. So please consider checking that out. And thanks for listening. So about a month ago, the war in Ukraine entered its third phase this year. So the first phase of the conflict was this attempt by Russia to topple the government in Kiev with a lightning offensive that actually struck down from Belarus towards Kiev, and that failed spectacularly. The Russians were beaten, they retreated with their tails between their legs. And then in the second phase of the conflict, they shifted the war to the east, and the battle for the Donbass region of Ukraine began. This second phase of the war saw Russia make steady gains in the east of the country, they took many strategic cities and a lot of territory, but then the Russian advance kind of bogged down. It seemed that they'd reached what military analysts called a culminating point. They'd gone as far as they could with this offensive and they started to run out of manpower and material and energy to continue. About a month and a half ago, Ukraine then launched a counteroffensive which put us into this third phase of the conflict that we're in at the moment. And in that five or six weeks, Ukraine has managed to recapture thousands of square miles of territory in eastern Ukraine and take some really important strategic points, such as the railway and logistics hub of Lyman. At the same time, Ukraine's carried out some truly spectacular attacks against important Russian targets, such as the attack on the bridge that links Crimea to Russia. Russian forces have really, really struggled to cope with this counteroffensive. They've appeared demoralized, they've appeared poorly trained, they've retreated or surrendered in large numbers, and this has obviously been a very difficult spectacle for Vladimir Putin and the elites in Moscow to behold. So Russia took a series of moves in response to the fact that the war was turning against them in eastern Ukraine, and these moves have unfolded over the last five or six weeks as well. Firstly, they announced the mobilization of some 300,000 military draftees from within Russia. Initially, they said that they were only going to draft men that had previous military experience or were in the reserves, but they actually seem to have mobilized just a a huge number of men, basically anyone they could find, and this has led to huge backlash within Russian society. 
But at the same time, Russia announced the formal annexation of these areas of the Donbass that were actually in the process of slipping from their control. So it became a truly ridiculous situation that at the same time, the Russian Duma, that's the rubber stamp parliament in Moscow, was announcing that these territories were now formally part of Russia. Russia was losing control of them on the ground and has continued to do so ever since that annexation decision. Russia also stepped up its nuclear threats to some extent, and many observers believe that this was the point of the annexation announcement, because as soon as the Russian government said that these parts of eastern Ukraine had now been annexed to Russia, they thought that the the threat to defend this area with nuclear weapons would become more credible, because Russia says, okay, well now this war is taking place on Russian soil, and we will use nuclear weapons to respond to attacks on Russian soil. Now, in some ways, this this wasn't too credible because actually the Ukrainians have been busy blowing things up in Crimea for you know all year, and Crimea is supposedly, according to Russia, also Russian soil. But okay, you could say that the fact that ground operations and, and Ukrainian troops are actually in these regions might create a different situation. But Russia hasn't really followed up with any action here. So they announced the annexation. They said, we're going to nuke you if you attack these areas that are now parts of Russia. But then they've not nuked anyone. So they seem to be really struggling to try to appear credible and try to appear threatening. But they just never really follow through. And so this is the, or these are the, the factors that govern this new phase of the conflicts that we are in. Rapid Ukrainian gains and a panicking government in Moscow that seems unable to do anything about these gains. This means, though, that governments in the West that have been steadfastly committed to helping Ukraine do well in this conflict and have become allies of Ukraine in its war against Russia have stepped, I think almost without really noticing it, into quite a new situation. In the early days of the conflict, when many analysts assumed that the Ukrainian military would collapse fairly quickly and be overwhelmed by the Russians, the main fear that existed in Western capitals was that NATO might feel pushed to carry out some kind of intervention in Ukraine in order to stop a Russian victory. So this is what the debate over the no-fly zone was about right at the beginning of the conflict in March. You may remember this debate where some very senior military figures and politicians in the West were saying that the West should directly intervene in the war in Ukraine and put Russian jets out of the skies and potentially bomb Russian formations on the ground as well. Now, this would potentially have led to nuclear war. It was a very, very dangerous thing to be thinking about. But that assumption of Ukrainian weakness led to a situation where NATO thought, okay, we might have to intervene to stop a Ukrainian defeat. The situation now is a different one. It's one of Ukrainian strength, not Ukrainian weakness. But the worry in Western capitals is the opposite. What if Ukraine is too successful in this counteroffensive and it provokes Russia into escalation, for instance, by using nuclear weapons? I think that you don't yet see enough public acknowledgement or debate about the dilemma that the West now faces in this conflict. On the one hand, of course, restraining Ukraine, telling the Ukrainian government that it needs to limit its counteroffensive to not cross certain red lines means giving in to Russia's nuclear blackmail. But you already do see some private signals from Western capitals that this is what they feel they may eventually have to do. 
So let's unpack this dilemma and talk a little bit about how the conflicts might un unfold over the next few months. Winter is coming, as they say in the Game of Thrones universe. It's also what they say in Ukraine, because it's nearly December. It's likely that winter is going to slow down the operational tempo of this conflict to some extent. Terrain becomes less passable, keeping troops supplied becomes more difficult. Just lots and lots of, of, of things become more difficult in warfare when it's winter. And this pause might provide some time for Russia to regroup and to resupply and to get these conscripts to the front lines to maybe stabilize their, their lines to some extent. Now, it's a really open question, though, how useful these conscripts are going to be. They might actually be actively harmful to the Russian war effort. We see lots of videos on social media of evidence of conscripts not being provided with enough training or enough equipment. In some cases, they seem to be revolting against their conditions. Now, it's very hard, obviously, based on just a few videos we see on social media to generalize, but I think that the what we know about the pre-existing problems in the Russian military, the fact that so many of their experienced officers have been killed already in the con conflict, means that it probably is going to be hard for Russia to train quickly a, a new effective generation of soldiers. It seems impossible to imagine that they'll be more effective than the Russian forces that have been deployed in Ukraine so far, and they were not notably very effective. So there's a real question about how much combat power Russia can actually generate now in the next few months. It's also, I mean, it's possible that Russia could completely collapse in Ukraine. We've already seen some signs of real instability in the Russian forces. They have allowed Ukraine to reconquer a huge amount of territory quite quickly. Now, it's true that as Ukraine conquers or reconquers rather more and more of its territory, they move closer to positions that the Russians have occupied for eight years or so since um, the initial invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Those areas are much, much more fortified. They're much, much more well defended. But the morale and the quality of the troops defending them is not any better. So it is possible that we could see some kind of really just complete rout of Russian forces in, in eastern Ukraine. And that could, I don't want to say that could happen at almost any time because I don't think it's its likely to happen, but it could, you know, in, in, this, in the same way that if, you know, you roll two dice, then every so often you'll get two sixes. It could happen at almost any time. So there's a question that, that then comes in, which is that, well, if this does happen, if Russia does suffer big, big losses before the winter or maybe when the thaw sets in and, and winter clears, at what point is Russia going to really escalate the conflict to, to stop that collapse from happening? Now, they've already threatened to do this all of the time. And they've been, you know, Vladimir Putin is like the boy that cried nuke at this point. He keeps saying he's going to use nuclear weapons. He doesn't do it. So it makes his threats less and less credible. But I would argue that they become more and more credible as the situation in Ukraine gets much worse. And we have to ask, is there some kind of tipping point? Is there some kind of red line? Perhaps it's, for instance, the, the invasion of Crimea to try to liberate Crimea that might push Putin into considering nuclear use. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform.
Now, there's also lots of reasons to expect that Putin won't use nuclear weapons in this conflict. So the first is just that nuclear weapons are actually a very limited military utility in a war like the one that's been fought in Ukraine. So it's important to, to realize when we talk about nuclear weapons that there's essentially two types of nuclear weapons. There's what's called strategic nuclear weapons. These are like ICBMs. You know, the, the, the I think these have a bigger role in popular culture. It's the kind of bomb that you drop on a city and it destroys the city. This has, you know, very, very little military utility in the war in Ukraine. I mean, Russia could potentially drop an ICBM on Kiev, but... I mean, that's just going to just turn the rest of the world against Russia to such an extent that it, it doesn't it doesn't really help them achieve their goals in this conflict. Because also, if you if your goal is to conquer a country, then reducing it to a nuclear wasteland is not a way to do that. Right. It just it destroys the country and, and it makes you an international pariah for the rest of life. And, you know, your country, an international pariah forevermore, essentially. The other type of nuclear weapons are tactical nuclear weapons. These are ones that, so, so people don't realize that nuclear weapons can actually be very, very small. They can be, for instance, just big enough to take out like a city block or a column of tanks or, you know, basically they scale from there right up to the city destroyers. These types of weapons are also not really that much use in this kind of conflict. There aren't large concentrations of Ukrainian forces that it would be worth taking out with this kind of smaller nuclear weapon. And the military gains that you would get from using them on the battlefield would, again, be completely overshadowed by the international isolation that would follow from that, just the international condemnation that would follow from that. And I think we've seen in, in Russia already, whenever it escalates, even way below the level of using nuclear weapons, it gets criticized by everybody now. Even China, even the former Soviet republics reacted very badly to this horrific series of strikes that Russia carried out on civilian targets over the last week in response to the bombing of the Kerch bridge. This is the bridge between Crimea and, and Russia. So I think that if Russia used nuclear weapons, even small ones, then they're just not going to get the military uh, value that's worth the kind of international condemnation and pressure that they would get in response to that. And of course, you can only imagine how much this would just stiffen the will and the resolve of the Ukrainian population to defend their country even more so. It seems unlikely then that Putin is going to choose to use nuclear weapons unless he's in very, very extreme circumstances where he becomes really, truly desperate or his whatever rationality he still has breaks down completely. And those circumstances might be either A, a threat to the survival of his regime, or B, a threat to the existence of the Russian state or of Russia's control over what it considers to be core territory. But I do think it's important to remember that even if these two things are not necessarily the most likely outcomes from this conflict, they both could still happen. So Putin is coming under a great deal of criticism at home from nationalist opinion, from people in the military, in the security services, from nationalist ideologues and politicians who really, really want him to take a much harder line with Ukraine, and some of whom have already suggested that Russia should use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. 
So if Putin fears that he might be overthrown by right-wing figures, then maybe that would push him to use a nuclear weapon to try to stay in power. Or Putin could be overthrown and a new government could come to power that was composed of rabid nationalist ideologues. It's also possible, although we, we don't know this, that the loss of Crimea might be considered to be the loss of, of core Russian territory to which Russia would respond with a nuclear strike. One of Russia's most important naval bases is on Crimea, and you know it's been there for a long time. Russia really, really doesn't want to lose that naval base. Perhaps if Ukraine manages to do well enough in this conflict that they will um, threaten Russia's control of Crimea, that Russia might respond in this way. So the United States and other NATO governments are already thinking about these scenarios. And, and if, if my scenarios sound outlandish, then I would just say that the US is taking this very, very seriously. They're debating it in DC. They're talking about it. The US has already communicated to the Russian government how it would respond in the event of Russian nuclear strikes. We don't know what the US said because the content of those communications are private. But likely responses are either conventional strikes by NATO against Russian forces in Ukraine or NATO providing much, much more advanced weaponry to Ukraine in order to allow Ukraine to strike targets in Russia itself. The purpose of communicating to the Russians in advance what would happen if they use nuclear weapons is an attempt to try to control the chain of escalation that could happen after that usage. So if Russia uses a nuclear weapon and then it suffers very clear consequences that America had outlined in advance, then the hope is that this could be the end of the chain of escalation. If Russia knows what's going to happen, that happens, and then they back off, then we, the theory goes at least that we could prevent this situation where both sides are very worried about each other's intentions and they keep striking at one another harder and harder without knowing where it's going to end. But this is kind of theory. We've never ever actually implemented this theory before. We don't know if the escalation chain could be controlled after Russia's use of nuclear weapons. So it placed the world in a very, very dangerous situation because the United States is not going to allow the use of nuclear weapons to go unanswered, to break the nuclear taboo, to imply that nuclear weapons can be used as a, as a regular everyday tool of warfare without extreme consequences could have enormously negative implications for global security. So the US is going to respond forcefully and we're going to be in a very, very dangerous situation if, if that happens. I think though, it's important to realize that actually the use of nuclear weapons, just like these other decisions, like the mobilization and like the annexation, these are all signs of weakness from Putin. The, the annexation and the mobilization were not something that he wanted to do, but the things that he felt like he had to do because he was backed into a corner. And what we don't know is how far you've got to back him into a corner before he would also consider the use of nuclear weapons, which obviously don't have military utility, are obviously going to lead to the complete isolation of, it, of his government, but which he may eventually feel he has no choice but to use. All of this is why I'm really worried right now about how this conflict ends. And I don't think that we in the West really have a clear plan for that right now. 
Our strategy at the moment seems to be that we will support Ukraine until they kick Russia out of all of the territory that that is legally and rightly part of Ukraine, including Crimea, and just hope that Russia accepts this. Just hope that the Russian regime doesn't respond with the use of the most horrific weapons at its disposal, which, by the way, include not just nuclear weapons, but also biological and chemical weapons as well. But given how Putin has outlined what he sees as the stakes of this conflict for the Russian nation, plus the potential threat that it poses to his regime, and I think we have to also realize that, you know, if he's thrown out of power, he's probably not just going to be allowed to go and live in some mansion somewhere for the rest of his days, he'll probably be killed. So facing these threats, is it really likely that he's going to allow a complete collapse of the Russian occupation of Ukraine, even if that means his own overthrow and probable death, or that he won't be replaced by someone who won't allow this to happen? And so I have this sense that we have really a situation in which an unstoppable force is hitting an immovable object, and we have no idea of what's going to happen as they collide into each other. I think it's important to say that this isn't a, a, an argument that we should stop supporting Ukraine. I'm not against supporting Ukraine, and I think it's absolutely vital that Russia be humbled and it be shown to the rest of the world that aggressive wars of this nature, especially within Europe, cannot be allowed and cannot go unpunished. But I also think that we there's a there's a contradiction or there's a there's a blind spot in our strategy here, that we just don't know how this is going to end, except for we have this wishful hope that that essentially Ukraine will be allowed by Russia to take back all of its territory without Russia using a nuclear weapon. And I know that these private discussions are taking place within the US administration right now, and there are discussions about war goals taking place between the US and Ukraine as well. And we have to ask, will the US at some point put pressure on Ukraine to settle the conflict somewhere short of restoring its entire pre-2014 territorial integrity? It's hard to imagine that American officials are going to ignore these Russian threats of escalation, particularly if they get more concrete. This brings me back to something that I've talked about on this podcast before, which is that there is just a real asymmetry of interest between Russia and America in the fate of Ukraine. Russia cares much, much more about what happens in Ukraine than America does. And because the Russian military offensive has gone so badly so far, we have been kind of spurred from facing up to the implications of this. But ultimately, it's just not credible to believe that Joe Biden or any American president is going to risk a nuclear war with Russia that might potentially end the existence of the United States so that Ukraine can reconquer one more province of its territory, right? And I don't think the public has been prepared for this debate which is going on within the American government right now about how far they are willing to go in order to enable and support Ukraine to achieve its maximal war goals even at the risk of that worst-case scenario. But I assure you that that debate is coming at one point. And I think it's likely, before this war is over, that we will see America and other NATO allies begin to pressure Ukraine 
to moderate its actions and to moderate its goals in order to reach some kind of negotiated solution to this conflict that is going to allow Russia to walk away feeling that it doesn't need to escalate to this nightmare scenario. So I hope that this episode has helped to shed some light on the new dynamics of the conflict in Ukraine and the dilemmas and challenges that it poses for Western officials and for American foreign policy. Here's hoping that one day Ukraine will be united and free, free of Russian oppression. How we get there, though, is very, very dangerous, tricky road that needs to be navigated with extreme care in the months ahead. I'll be back on the podcast talking about that journey in the coming months. And please check out the free America Explained newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes for this episode, in order to read more of my thoughts on the war in Ukraine and any other topic that comes into my head. Thanks for listening and see you next time. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.